this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries... A divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Red Hills. My name is Kate Swanson. I am the executive pastor here. And as you may have noticed, we have some really lighthearted subjects on the docket today. Yeah. Okay, you guys okay? You're okay? Okay. Uh, we are going to talk about this. Jesus talked about this. This is straight from the Sermon on the Mount. So we are going to continue in our series, The Upside Down Kingdom. We are going to talk about Jesus embracing and fulfilling all of the Old Testament in his new writing, how anger can be murderous, how our love should not be lustful, and how divorce is a painful break in God's original design. And I acknowledge that these subjects are deeply personal and deeply devastating to some. And I want you to hear me say, I am so sorry for what you have walked through or what you are currently walking through. I am so sorry for the pain and the brokenness of this world. And I pray that in this time, we can hear Jesus' teaching and hear his heart for his people. Can we pray? I need it. We all need it. Okay. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that as we unpack your words, as we unpack the scriptures, Lord, that you would be with us, that we would be with every person watching online in this room, around this building, Lord, 
that you would reveal yourself through these scriptures, that in all this time of preparation, the Holy Spirit, you would move. You would move in, in my words. You would move in this place that it would be nothing of me but only of you. So, Lord, we ask that you come. You rest on your people. Bring comfort. Bring peace. Bring hope. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, guys. This is the big picture. And what I want us to use as our lens to look at these scriptures today. In all of this, Jesus is talking about your heart. His greatest desire is to point you towards God's original design, a world with no brokenness, no sin. What was declared over us in Genesis 1 in how God made everything, including man and woman, he looked at all that he made and he said it was good. You were made for good. But unfortunately... We live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thank the Lord for the Lord. (laughs) As Jesus followers, we know that the story doesn't end with brokenness. We know that it ends with a new heaven and a new earth and all things reconciled and redeemed because our Savior went to the cross, and his body broken for us is the greatest gift of grace and redemption. But the heart of everything between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22 is Jesus drawing us close to him. He wants our hearts to be in alignment with the original design that God had when he said, let us make mankind in our likeness. This is where we have instruction. This is where Jesus gives us his word, his red letter words to follow as a guide. So as we go through today's passage, we are not looking at these verses isolated from all that we know to be true of Christ. Are you forgiven when you confess your sin? Yes. Then are your mistakes washed clean by his blood? Yes. Are you chosen and beloved, a child of God, a new creation? Are you set free by the truth of his word? Are you free from condemnation? Are you being transformed into his image? All of this, yes. Okay, we can take a deep breath, right? (laughs) We have these things as our assurance. So now we can dive into the text. This section of scripture is from the Sermon on the Mount, which further shows us how upside down Jesus' kingdom is. Pastor Lane shared last week how Jesus went went up to the mountainside um, outside of Galilee and began teaching his disciples, which we believe was probably over the course of a few days. Last week, our series opened with the Beatitudes, these beautiful blessings that are not only gifts, but also instruction, and that we are the salt and the light of the earth. And we continue to learn about how God's kingdom is established on relationship, and that Jesus wants your heart to be in right relationship with him, rather than simply abiding abiding by Old Testament law and checking all the boxes on whether you're being obedient or not. Jesus says he has not come to tear down and make the law a crumbling pile of rubble, 
but that he has come to fulfill it, the prophetic words spoken in the Old Testament, that he is establishing and bringing validity to all that the Jewish elite, um, what they were taught and what they know, that there is further fulfillment and further application. And spoiler alert, the end of the Sermon on the Mount closes where Jesus says that he is the judge at the end of the age. And Jesus exercises the authority of God alone. In chapter 7, we'll unpack this down the road. Those that call on the Lord's name who prophesy in his name, and yet at the end of the age, Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you. This points us to the main theme of this in verse 17. Jesus is not extending, annulling, or intensifying Old Testament law. He is showing the direction in which it points. If it's Jesus at the end of the age, he is the sole authoritative interpreter, the one whom the Old Testament finds its validity, its continuity, and its significance. And Jesus goes on to say that we're not throwing out any of it. He shares it's of utmost importance. Even the smallest letter, I looked it up, it's called Yod. It's like an apostrophe, guys. It's a small letter. <laughs> and not even the least pen stroke, like a serif on a serif font. He's not coming to wipe out the even smallest ornamental stroke. Jesus is saying all of this, all of the Hebrew scripture is of utmost importance. But we must move past the long list of do's and don'ts of the law and look at the heart. We have to move past religion and surface level righteousness. We have to move towards a deeper level of righteousness that looks at the heart. And that should be full of love. If our heart isn't in the right place, Jesus says it's going to be hard to get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus continues to say, I tell you the truth, which is Jesus upholding the authority of the Old Testament scriptures, even beyond the cross or the end of the age, all of God's redemptive purposes will be fulfilled. In terms of salvation, Jesus' impending death and resurrection will shift everything we know about salvation history. Before it, the disciples were restricted to Israel. This is where you come and give your sacrifices. And after it, they're instructed to go to the ends of the earth to share about Jesus' sacrifice. And Jesus reiterates that the law is to be obeyed, not only in keeping commands, but in our faithfulness to teach them. The commandments must be practiced, but the nature of practicing them has been affected by Jesus' fulfillment. Jesus is pointing us to the true direction of the kingdom. And Jesus' teachings are not more lenient than Old Testament law. All of this is expecting perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. While verse 20 does not state how righteousness is gained, it's simply laying out how we are supposed to follow our new righteousness beyond that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is renewed in Jesus in both quality and quantity. The next section, Jesus is explaining uh, different commandments and how our hearts should be in alignment with him. Jesus begins each section, you have heard it said, and follows up with, but I tell you. 
And we have to take note of this. Jesus isn't riling up a scholarly debate. (laughs) Each statement brings importance and context to the messianic and eschatological fulfillment of the person of Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever. When you hear Jesus repeat, but I tell you, this is emphatic, saying that all of the law is pointing to his teaching. This is why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd say they were amazed at his authority. So for the rest of this sermon, in the next two weeks, we are going to be uncovering these kind of six statement sections on murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, an eye for an eye, and loving your neighbor as yourself. In each of these areas, Jesus contrasts the people's misunderstanding of the law with the true direction in which the law points. According to Jesus' own authority as the law's fulfiller, and establisher. So the first section discusses murder, which is the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Cool. Got it. Check the box. Haven't done that. Okay. But Jesus is saying the root of murder is anger. Anger is a murderous principle. We don't simply gain Jesus's favor by refraining from homicide. It's saying an angry person will be subject to judgment. This is a kingdom principle of the condemnation of hate of any person around you. Now, anger is a spontaneous feeling when our mind and our body take over, when somebody or something stops our will or what we want to happen. There are all kinds of anger from ego and being narcissistic and Uh, in being angry at injustice or angry over evil or anger that is even triggered from emotional pain. Anger is not necessarily a sin. Occasionally, anger in mature and healthy is, is the mature and healthy response to evil. Don't misread Jesus. He's not saying to never be angry. It's more about holding on to a grudge against another. The Greek word for anger used here is orgizo, which means to provoke or enrage or become exasperated. So when we call each other fools or raka, which means to call someone senseless or empty-headed, it comes from a place of begrudging or deep annoyance. The NASB translated raka as you good for nothing. Ouch, right? That one stinks. And if you hurl insults, you idiot, you're dumb, you're stupid, you are answerable to the court. You are answerable to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the day. Jesus is saying, take this seriously. Continuing in the verse where it says, you fool, is the word moras, which is where we get the word moron from. But it means not only to be unintelligible, but to also be immoral. Jesus uses it again in the Sermon on the Mount when he describes the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. When you call them a fool, you move from just saying they're not intelligent to putting judgment on the whole person, shaming who they are 
not just what they do. This section kind of that says, uh, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Hell is misleading in English, and it opens up all sorts of connotation and images from this world. So whatever imagery you have from movies or shows, uh, let's just put those aside for a moment. <laughs> We're talking about Gehenna. It is the Valley of Hinnom on the south side of Jerusalem. It is a very real place that those who were listening would have known about. It became a dumping ground for corpses of criminals in smoldering fires. Over time, this valley became a word picture of the judgment to come, not only now, but to come, not only in this age, but the next. If you give in to anger, you are in dangers of the fire of hell, which doesn't clearly state if this is present tense or future tense. I don't think we realize that the life to come is really a trajectory of where we are right now. The life you will experience forever is what you are living into. The people who are not living for Jesus would not enjoy heaven because the kingdom of heaven is where Jesus is on the throne, where Jesus' full intent of human flourishing is known, where we worship him as our savior and we live out the fulfillment of his promises. And those who choose not to follow Jesus will not see the restoration of the new heaven and the new earth. This is the closest they'll ever get to heaven. Your future is a continuation of every single decision you make. As followers of Jesus, we have a heavenly assurance. So we take this mandate to do away with anger seriously. We don't call each other's names. We don't put each other down. We don't hold on to contempt. We have to keep our eyes focused on the kingdom. So we have to do the work to be continually transformed by Jesus. I love how scripture comes full circle in your life. We serve a big God who is so personal and intimate to each one of us. And when I first read through this assigned section of scripture, I realized, oh yeah, God had me point to this scripture and unpack it when we were in our James series when we were talking about being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. These reminders are throughout the scripture because the Lord knows we need them. <laughs> we need them. Ephesians 4.32 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. A few scriptures earlier, it says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building, up according, building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now I hear some of your internal thoughts saying, wait, wait a second, Jesus was angry. <laughs> and we always like to point to the section of scripture where Jesus overturned the tables and benches in the temple but none of the gospel accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple explicitly reference anger. John's account said he made a whip of cords to drive all out of the courts, including sheep and cattle. That kind of makes sense to me. Mark's account says that they actually saw the temple, went away for um, the night, and then came back the next day to cleanse it. So it wasn't like Jesus was like busting down the door and coming in. He actually had been there already, and he knew what was happening. 
this instance can be viewed as well-managed outrage or all-consuming zeal. Jesus was angry when he uh, was angry at the Pharisees who were trying to keep Jesus from healing the man with the shriveled arm on the Sabbath. Mark 3, 5 says of Jesus, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus was angry about their hearts. These are the people a moment later who will begin plotting Jesus's death. He's angry at their intent. They come at Jesus with Old Testament law and Jesus replies, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He has come to fulfill it. In all of this, Jesus comes as suffering servant and equally as judge and king. How often do we get angry at our personal grievances? Jesus did it. The gospel in Luke says, in his suffering, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In 1 Peter, it said, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus's anger is always well-controlled, precisely targeted and short-lived. His anger is not an instant response from being provoked, but a function of his impeccable holiness. He knows how to be indignant, irate, maybe even furious, but without the slightest trace of derision, contempt, or abuse. The high standard that Jesus sets for others are the standard, is the standard that he lives up to himself. So Jesus gives us two examples or applications of how we are to take this principle of anger seriously. The first is to leave your gift. Jesus was preaching at Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee. And if you were making your annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem with your offering, with your sacrifice, it was about an 80-mile journey. And Jesus uses this hypothetical example to say, you get to the altar, you're supposed to leave your sacrifice at the altar. You're supposed to go home and walk 80 miles home and make it right with your friend and then walk 80 miles back. Again, Jesus shares the seriousness of dealing with anger. We have to deal with the root problem of the condition. Here's my personal hypothetical example. Let's say you're having an argument with your spouse or your roommate on your way to church, <laughs> right? I can only imagine maybe you're running late and you're blaming each other, or maybe you came downstairs and the dishes weren't done by the other person the night before. I've definitely never had this situ hypothetical situation happen to me, ever. <laughs> Sorry, my sarcasm comes off sometimes. And then maybe, just maybe, you show up, you get in the auditorium and you're like, my worship feels off. Now we come here to worship Jesus because he is worthy of our praise. But he also wants us to be in right relationship with others. And he wants our heart to be in the right place. While you might sit in service and look up to Jesus and be like, change their heart, change their heart. 
I hope this message is like daggers, like, <laughs> you know? This is, again, this has never happened to me or my husband, Tony, ever. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I need you to humble yourself and change your heart. Seek reconciliation. Make it right before you come and commune with me. The second is to settle along the way. You, um, you have a legal dispute. You're on your way to the appointment with your court, with the person you're against. And Jesus is saying, talk with this person and settle it together. You can go to prison for this. If you lose your case, you or your family member are liable for the debt to be paid. And if they can't pay it, you will never get out. Deal with the issue quickly before it imprisons you. I personally, at times, have a tendency to shy away from conflict. If I'm in a dispute with someone, I can mentally justify putting it off until I absolutely have to face it. And normally, in the meantime, the situation gets worse. <laughs> my fears become even more irrational, or my emotions build. I'm going to guess I'm not the only one who's experienced this. Jesus knows us so deeply. He says, deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. All of this is not easy to do. Our culture is full of anger and contempt. We widen the gap and find deeper differences between each other instead of reconciling and continuing in relationship. We can be really lousy at meeting with people and asking them, can we talk about this? Can we sit down for coffee? Can we be open and honest? Can we own our own part? Can we ask for forgiveness? And can we extend grace to the other person? This is what Jesus is calling us to. Okay, now we move to the section on adultery in which Jesus quotes and establishes the seventh commandment and expounds his fulfillment by illustrating the 10th commandment. It says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus is looking at the heart. Lust is a heart issue. This is not solely for the guys in the room. It affects both genders, and honestly, I grew up in churches where I didn't hear a lot of female perspectives on this. And don't get me wrong, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's giving illustrations of lusting after a woman. But there is something for everyone to learn from here. We have to understand that when you see an attractive person, there is something that happens mentally and physically. It's neurobiological. It's a concoction of chemicals in your brain. You see someone and something triggers in your mind to recognize that you're not simply taking in information, but you're also processing a physical reaction. I like to call this the Jiminy Cricket, right? <laughs> so you have that slight second of a moment where your conscious tells you something's different and something's off. And when it comes to lust, it's when instead of turning away or initially taking that thought captive, it's when you allow yourself to go down that road. You look again. You fantasize. You replay that movie in your mind. You continue to think about it for hours or days or weeks to come. Rather 
than overriding your lust because of your relationship with Jesus. You give in to it. This is a core issue at the root of our flesh. And Jesus is not solely interested in us abstaining from sin, but with our actions that we love others well. Beyond just learning not to lust, what Jesus is after is the kind of transformation to help us not only refrain from objectifying thoughts, but to create in us a pure, create in us pure, dignifying, and humanizing thoughts. It's not just about not lusting. It's about loving. Anger is not just about not killing someone. It's about loving. So what is Jesus' practical application instead of going down that road? Tear out your right eye, which was often known as your good eye. Cut off your right hand, which was often known as your strong hand. Since your eyes and your hand lead you to sin, you must give them the (laughs) chop-chop. So at the end of our gathering, our prayer teams will be up. No, I'm like, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. No, this is not Jesus's true intent in these statements. Hear me out. If Jesus's intent was for you to physically amputate something, he obviously would have picked a different part, right? Like, it would make the most sense. Um, But okay, Jesus is using a rhetorical device, which we call hyperbole. He's exaggerating his statements to get a point across. What Jesus is saying is that we have to take the deceitfulness of lust seriously. We don't just slap a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. We have to do surgery to fix the issue. If you don't, it's a gaping hole that will only cause you pain and discomfort until we deal with the condition. We need to really get to the root in our hearts that causes our eyes and our hands to commit acts of disobedience. Because this kind of sin arises from the heart. Amputation can't cure it. Jesus is pointing us in a direction of purity that refuses to lust or entice others to lust. The lustful intent is for um, the lustful intent is for something outside of marriage, outside of our heavenly mandate between a man and a woman. Jesus is content, condemning the internal seed of the outward sin. Okay, and the last section we will cover today is on divorce. And this one is hard. My husband, Tony, and I have both been raised by single moms. My mother was married um, before I was born to a man who committed adultery against her and got another woman pregnant while they were married. My mom was never married to my dad, but she did remarry when I was in middle school and got divorced two years later because we found out he was a con artist and he actually went into hiding. We lost absolutely everything. My husband, Tony, was raised by an incredible mom who has been a deep gift to me our entire marriage. But sadly, she had to flee an abusive marriage. Her kids were two under two. Sorry, two years old and, and two under. 
Um, and she decided to never remarry. So we know the heartache of what it's like growing up in homes without our dads. And there are two sides to every story, but our mothers were victims of divorce by the sinful choices of others. Guys, adrenaline does weird things to my tear ducts. Okay, so. (laughs) And if you've walked through divorce, or if someone close to you has, someone close to me has, or if you're walking through it right now, I am so sorry for the deep pain and agony you have to experience. It's treacherous. And I believe the brokenness of this fallen world is felt in the deep pain of areas we can't reconcile and we can't make sense of sometimes. In this passage, Jesus is speaking to the culture of the time where men were allowed to divorce a woman for almost any reason, as long as they gave her a certificate of divorce. This was their act of fulfilling the law involved in divorce. Women, however, were not granted the same kinds of legal privileges. Women were much more at the mercy of their male providers. So for a divorced woman, often her best chance to provide for herself and potentially her children, was to get remarried. Sometimes a woman would go through several divorces, all based on the smallest breaches of the law or even made-up reasons. This is potentially what we see happening with the woman at the well in John 4. There are also instances that Jesus doesn't talk about here when it comes to divorce, but I do think But I don't think it means that we shouldn't consider them or we can't consider them. For example, I don't think Jesus wants anyone to stay in a physically abusive marriage. That kind of relationship poses a danger to the spouse and the children. The same thing can be said about a marriage where one spouse is gambling away all their money and placing a family in poverty or food insecurity. Jesus was publicly calling out the men of this culture urging them to stop divorcing their wives on trumped-up charges and passing them around like commodities. This is why in many translations, and the one we read today, it says, it actually says, anyone who divorces his wife except for a sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. The heart of this passage is discouraging hasty divorces. Jesus is making it clear that divorce should be viewed um, as a result of human sin by either one or both parties. And it is not part of God's creation design. Jesus is pointing to the sanctity of marriage, which is why we as pastors, we, we love to walk with couples and um, going through premarital, going through so many things like um, talking about communication and expectations and conflict resolution and family and friends. We believe biblical godly marriage was created to be a reflection of heaven. Right relationship, perfect union, joy, peace, love, and comfort. And if you know someone who has walked through a divorce, you know it's excruciatingly painful. And it is not a glimpse of heaven. 
but God in his love and mercy covers it all, walks through it all, looks at you and says you are beloved and cherished and cared for. We can walk through the brokenness and ask Jesus to be at the center and lead us into whatever's next. We understand the sin and brokenness of our fallen world. And while Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, he is also equally our redeemer. When we come to Jesus with a repentant heart, through his body broken and his blood poured out, our sins are forgiven. And with that, we come to communion. Now, communion is for those who profess Jesus as Lord, and if you are not there yet, we are so glad that you're here. We would love to pray with you, talk with you, um, come down to the front at the end. But if you're not there yet, we invite you to just hold on to the elements. When I look at our communion and these elements, I know the weight that Jesus bore for us the sorrow that he experienced so we could be with him forever. In Isaiah 53, it prophesied of the Messiah, Messiah who we know is Jesus, a man despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, and that he took up our pain and bore our suffering, stricken and afflicted, pierced and crushed. And I think of the pain within this text, the anger and the brokenness and the divisiveness and the hurt and pain. And Jesus walked this earth and said, I get it. And his body was broken and his blood was spilled so that our sins could be washed away and we could be in right relationship with him. We can be continually transformed into his image. So we take a moment to recognize Jesus' sacrifice. We ask for continued forgiveness. Search us and know us, Lord. Redeem and transform us. May our lives be more cruciform to you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and gave thanks for it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, he took the cup. His blood poured out the new covenant said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's read together. We're going to continue in a time of worship. I'm just going to invite you to stand or sit or however you feel ready to respond. <laughs>